Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Emma Gunn Show. I am your host, Emma Gunn-Awardner, and joining me in this episode of the podcast is the author and fellow podcaster, Gretchen Rubin. Now, Gretchen's name has become synonymous with happiness, mainly because she has researched and written about the subject for over a decade now. She has tested theories on how to live a more fulfilled life and written extensively on the link between happiness and habits. And the books based on those tests and research have become and are New York Times bestselling books. She is a member of Oprah's Super Soul 100 and has been interviewed on the subject of happiness by Oprah herself and has one of iTunes' most downloaded podcasts, Happier with Gretchen Rubin. Now, all of this means that Gretchen has become something of a star in the self-help world and has seen her called a self-help maven and a happiness expert. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel as though the subject of happiness has been at the front of people's minds more and more over the last 10 years or so. And as reports suggest anxiety and depression are on the rise, it feels as though it's something that's taken a lot more seriously, a pursuit that requires effort rather than a natural state of life. It's for this reason that Gretchen was on my hit list of people I wanted to speak to on the show. There's also something so wonderfully grounded and practical about how Gretchen offers up advice and insight. She's one of us, and she really didn't disappoint. Gretchen has written several best-selling books, including 40 Ways to Look at Winston Churchill and 40 Ways to Look at JFK, The Happiness Project, or Why I Spent a Year Trying to Sing in the Morning, Clean My Closets, Fight Right, Read Aristotle, and Generally Have More Fun, Happier at Home, Kiss More, Jump More, Abandon a Project, Read Samuel Johnson, and My Other Experiments in the Practice of Everyday Life, Better Than Before, What I Learned About Making and Breaking Habits, To Sleep More, Quit Sugar, Procrastinate Less, and Generally Build a Happier Life, and her latest book, The Four Tendencies, The Indispensable Personality Profiles That Reveal How to Make Your Life Better, Brackets, and Other People's Lives Better Too. Now, Gretchen was over in the UK to talk about this last book, The Four Tendencies, recently, and this is why we were able to sit down face-to-face over black coffees and talk about happiness and much, much more. Now, The Four Tendencies is really interesting. It breaks down the four personality types, as Gretchen sees it, based on how we all respond to inner and outer expectations. Now, she talks about this in great detail in the show, so I won't double up here. But what I will say is that other personality tests, and I'm using, I'm doing air quotes, which is great for audio, have left me feeling frustrated in the past because I've thought mainly, mainly something like, Mm, I'm predominantly that, but I'm also a sprinkle of this and a smattering of that. And so any rule or method that I was supposed to follow out of it in order to be my best self never really stuck. What Gretchen does with the four tendencies is draw an overview of the four types, but allow for overlap. What I can tell you is that several of my friends and colleagues have read the book and feel, as I do, that it's a real game changer. And as someone who reads a lot of these sorts of books, I don't say that lightly. 
Now, these same friends had also discovered Gretchen in other ways, with several having been devoted listeners and subscribers to the podcast I mentioned earlier, which she co-hosts with her sister, Elizabeth Craft. And when I told them she was coming on the show, the response was always and exclaimed, oh my God, I love her. In this episode, we talk about how she came to discern the personality types, what she's learned from writing the book about herself and other people, as well as what we, the reader, can take from the pages. I also asked whether it's a burden to be a poster girl for happiness, what it was like hanging out with Oprah. I mean, I couldn't not ask, right? And much more. I'll be putting the links, all of the links to Gretchen's books and her podcast in the show notes on iTunes and on emmaguns.com. But if you want to discuss any of the points raised in the episode further, why not head over to the brand new Facebook group I've created, The Emma Gunn Show, colon, The Forum. I'll be putting a link in the show notes, so do go over there, join, post a question, start a conversation, let's have a chat. Right, it's time to get back to Gretchen. I really hope you enjoy it. Here she is, Gretchen Rubin on The Emma Gunn Show. Gretchen Rubin, thank you so much for joining me on the show. I'm so happy to be talking to you. Thanks I'm, so much. And I'm so glad you're in London. Yes. Oh, and beautiful th- London. I love coming to London. And we, we have got a very beautiful, crisp December day. Yes. With the sun shining in on us to do this conversation. Yes. But um, there's so much to talk to you about, but I want to talk about your book, The Four Tendencies, which I'm holding very protectively. <laughs> um, <laughs> This is why you're over here, because you're yes. doing a, a, something of a promo tour. Yes. I have read it. <laughs> Shall I just be honest and say yeah. I've read my section? Okay, good. Yeah, great. And great. now I'm trying to navigate. So do you want to give the listeners a bit of a background about the four tendencies? Okay. Um, so I, I'll say how I got the idea, and then I'll explain. I'll give sure. a quick overview mm-hmm. of what the four tendencies are. Um, so I got the idea from it from, for it because um, I was talking to a friend about her happiness and her habits, and my sister says I can be a little bit of a happiness bully, and so I was <laughs> grilling her, um, and she said to me something that just electrified me, even though I'd heard many people say something similar, which she said, um, I know I would be happier if I exercised, and the weird thing is, when I was in high school, I was on the track team, and I never missed track practice, so why can't I go running now? And I thought, well, why not? Because it's the same person, it's the same behavior. At one time it was effortless, now she can't do it. How do you explain that? Mm-hmm. Like, what, what's the pattern here? So I began looking for other patterns, and after a long um, kind of uh, brain-melting process, it was definitely the hardest intellectual challenge um, of my life to come up with this framework, um, I realized that people are either upholders, questioners, obligers, or rebels, depending on how we respond to expectations. So... You know, we all have outer expectations, which are things like a work deadline or a request from a friend, and inner expectations, which is like uh, a New Year's resolution or the desire to get back into practicing guitar. Mm-hmm. So upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. They meet the work deadline. They keep the New Year's resolution without much fuss. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if they think it makes sense. Mm-hmm. So they, they make everything an inner expectation because if they're satisfied something makes sense, they'll do it no problem. If they think it doesn't make sense, they will resist it. They tend to hate anything arbitrary, inefficient, or irrational. Then there are obligers. And so this is a, they, they readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner mm-hmm. expectations. So this was my friend on the track team. When she had a team and a coach waiting for her, no problem. When she was trying to go on her own, she struggled. And then finally, rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, inner and outer alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. They can do anything they want to do. They can do anything they choose to do. But if you ask 
or tell mm-hmm. them to do something, they're very likely to resist. So these, and you know, that's the 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 um, extremely quick overview mm-hmm. of the four tendencies. I'm interested by a couple of things that you said within that. First of all, can we unpick the happiness bully tag? Oh, uh, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can be a little insistent on um, on like if I feel like there's some happiness boosting opportunity that you are not <laughs> properly taking advantage of. Um, I really try to hold that back because um, I sometimes can be a little bit too forceful in um if I see something where I'm like, oh my gosh, this is just a huge mistake, mm-hmm. do something different. You, know? you said something um, because you were a lawyer previously, is yes. that correct? And I found a quote from you and it was one of those, you talk about being electrified. Mm. Think, yes. The quote is, and please correct me if I'm wrong, because obviously things can be incorrect on the internet. The quote is, I'd rather fail as a writer than succeed as a lawyer. Yeah, that, that was one of my big uh, like revelations before I switched as I was thinking about switching careers, at a certain point, I was like, I have to, I have to try writing. And when did the happiness element come into it? Well, what a lot of people don't understand is that the Happiness Project book was my fourth book. Mm-hmm. So I had made the switch. It was obviously a huge happiness booster for me to switch careers. Mm-hmm. But I wrote three books before, and, and was a working writer well before I did the Happiness Project. And the Happiness Project was just, you know, I, it's something that occurred. I was just on a bus one day, and I was like, well, what do I want from life anyway? I thought, I want to be happy. Mm-hmm. But I realized I didn't spend any time thinking about how I could be happier if I even was happy. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I should, have a, I should do a Happiness Project. And eventually that turned into the Happiness Project book. There seems to be a big focus on this, mm-hmm. particularly in the last, I'd say, five years or so, of people, and I think especially women, stopping and saying what makes me happy mm-hmm. in a way that I don't think my mother's generation or her mother's generation did. Why do you think that is? I think there's several things. <coughs> I think there's several things coming together. One is there's been a lot more academic research into happiness, life satisfaction and all that. And I think that's been a big jumping off place for people to talk about it and think about it. So there's sort of all this research and studies for think, for people to think about. And then I think there are two contrary um, aspects of, of culture right now that pull in opposite directions, but actually both lead people to back to a study of happiness. One is, um, from any kind of historical basis, we live at a time of in- immense prosperity and security, I mean, compared to the past. Mm-hmm. And so it's natural that when people aren't worrying about putting food on the table, um, you know, or surviving um, the plague, they start to think about, you know, do I have meaningful relationships? Do I have work that's satisfying to me. And sometimes people dismiss this. They're like, well, you know, why are you just like running running around thinking about whether you're happy all the time? I'm like, well, what do you want people to be thinking about? Uh, To Mm -hmm. me, it seems appropriate that when people's basic needs are satisfied, they start thinking about more transcendent matters Mm -hmm. like happiness. Now, on on the other hand, we do live at a time historically of tremendous peace and prosperity, but it also feels like a time of tremendous change and uncertainty Mm -hmm. and anxiety. And so, you know, and people, so I think, so, and people feel that very much, you know, like there was the big recession, there's everything that's going on in the world right now. Um, This makes people very, you know, I think often makes them turn towards themselves and think there's so much going on in the world. What can I do to cultivate my own happiness, my own peace of mind? What can I do to make the world better in my own way within my own uh, circle of influence or um, volunteering or whatever. And so I think that also makes people think about um, mm. how to be happier. So even though those are kind of paradoxically pulling in different directions, I think they both contribute to sort of uh, a greater interest in 
how to live a happier, healthier, more productive, more creative life. When you were a lawyer and you were having these thoughts about writing, and I know lots of listeners have engaged with the show and have written in and want a side hustle or feel like they're stuck for the purposes of paying bills and keeping a roof above their head in doing something perhaps they don't like. We did you did you feel unhappy or did you mm. just feel that there was something bigger on the other side? Well, that's a very interesting question because I think a lot of times people know they don't like what they have, but they don't know where to go, mm-hmm. and so there's a lot of uncertainty and kind of like, what color is my parachute? And that's hard, <laughs> you know. For me, it was very much a pull towards something. When I was clerking for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, I got this idea for a book that I wanted to write. And just, I was working, I just started working on it in my free time, not even thinking that it was a book. It was just sort of like this weird thing I was doing. And then slowly I was like, this could be a book. And Mm -hmm. then I was like, this is a book that I want to write. Mm -hmm. I need to become a writer so I can write this book. Um, I was very pulled towards something. I almost felt a compulsion to do it. So for me, it was less about wanting to leave where I was and, but more seeing where I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that made it easier because when you have a very clear vision of where you want to go, of course, that makes it simpler. Mm. And I also, another quote was, um, I think I'm paraphrasing this one, is we all have the key to happiness. We all have it within us to find our happiness. Interesting question. Well, you know, happening, I don't think I said that. Um, I do. Damn you, internet. No, no, no. no. What, I, what I would have said is that we, we all, we can only have a happy life on the basis of our own nature. Mm-hmm. So we need self-knowledge in order to do it. But what's interesting is like 50% of happiness is genetically determined. Um, and then this is what research suggests. Mm-hmm. And then like, what is it? Uh, like 10 to 30% is life circumstances, which, like, which is like health education, occupation, marital status, things like that. And then all the rest is very much influenced by our conscious thoughts and actions. So I do think we all have the key to happiness within us. But the fact is, some people are naturally like a five on a Mm -hmm. one to ten scale, and some people are naturally a nine on the one to ten scale. I don't think everybody is going to like transform themselves into a nine. And that's very interesting because I think sometimes we can measure our own happiness by our perception of someone else's. Right, right, right. That can't be a good thing to do, I'm guessing. Well, you know where I hear this the most is where I hear from parents who are like seven, eights, nines, like really super kind of naturally happy, cheerful, optimistic people. And then they have a child who's like a four, a five, a six. And the thing is, people who like people like that's a way to be. and, Mm -hmm. And people who are like that are like, don't keep getting up in my grill telling me to change you know like I I think I'm seeing the world in the right way um I and but the parent is like well I want to change this child Mm -hmm. I want to make this child see the world the way I do and again I'm like well people are different from each other and you need to respect that Mm -hmm. and not constantly be trying to um you know nag somebody into being more um kind of upbeat Mm -hmm. because some people you know if you know Winnie the Pooh some people are naturally Tiggers and some Mm -hmm. people are naturally Eeyores and you know there's only so much you can do but I think we all have a range like say your range is four to seven we can all do the things that are going to push us up to the top of our natural range or press ourselves down to the Mm -hmm. bottom of our natural range so I think there are things that everyone can do to make sure they're as happy as they can be within their circumstances and their nature But I don't think that we're infinitely malleable. That is such a good point and leads very actually very neatly into the four tendencies because Mm. when I was reading it, it is just very structured in the fact that it's 
everyone is different mm-hmm. yes. and they fall into these four categories and what I love about the four tendencies is that if anyone who's listening has ever done a personality test <laughs> yeah you might think, well, kind of, I'm a bit like this, or I feel like I'm like 50% that or 50% the other. (laughs) What I like about the four tendencies, and listeners, I do encourage you to follow the link and take a look at this book, is that it it shows you the shades of grey within the personality types. Yes. So that you you, you can identify with it wholly. Uh huh. And really understand it. And what I was coming up with at the beginning of the show was, I've read my section because uh-huh. there's a very easy quiz. If uh-huh. you go onto happier.com forward slash quiz. Happiercast.com slash quiz. Yeah. Um, a million people have taken that quiz now. Seriously? Yes. It's amazing. Wow. Most quiz. people can tell just from a brief description, but yeah, there is a quiz if you want to like take yeah. a quiz. And yeah. it's something like 12, 15 Yeah, no, it's, it's not very, long. It, no, it's not long. But um, I read my section and then I was like, I really must sit down and read the others. But I, how do you get value out of, the, out of the personality types in the book that aren't you without saying to the people around you, could you just answer these 15 questions for me? Oh, oh, oh. Um, well, that's, you mean like, how can you ascertain what they are? Yes. I know because many people are like, I tried to get my husband to take this quiz and he wouldn't. <laughs> or like, my daughter refused to take the quiz. Um, well, a lot of times I think you can tell just mm-hmm. because of whatever the conflicts they are. Like people, people who are questioners are often told that they ask too many questions, mm-hmm. or people who are upholders are often others feel that they're too rigid, or rebels are the people who like if you ask them to do something they just won't do it. You know, so sometimes you can just tell pretty easily what someone is. Mm-hmm. But if you want to know, um, if you want to have like a question that you can, sort of a test question, <laughs> um, one thing to say is um, imagine that you and I were in a coffee shop and we're in the back room of a coffee shop. Nobody's really around, and there was a, fo- a sign on the wall that said "No cell phones," and I pulled out my cell phone and started using it. How would you feel? Oh, that would make me so anxious. <laughs> right? Okay. So me too. And so I'm an upholder. I don't like, I'm like, there's a sign that says no cell phone mm. use. So a questioner would be like, well, what's the reason for the sign? Because if you're in a hospital and you're going to interfere with important equipment, then that makes sense. If you're in a back room of a coffee shop and you're not going to disturb anybody, that sign is stupid. So mm. you don't need to pay attention to that sign. A rebel would be like, oh, awesome. I'm going to take a picture of you in front of that sign. Use your cell phone. Like, fly out the, con- fly out the convention. You don't, need to be, you don't need to pay attention to that at mm. all. And upholders and obligers who feel the weight of outer expectations would be uncomfortable about that mm-hmm. sign. Um, but there are also words that people say that tend to be big, big flashing signals. So upholders who readily meet outer and inner expectation will often talk about discipline in ways that are very positive. Like they like the idea of executing or keeping schedules or calendars or things mm-hmm. like that. So whenever anybody's talking kind of fondly about discipline, <laughs> um, that's a sign of an upholder. A sign of a questioner is saying that anything's arbitrary. Like, they get there right. in, like, a minute. You just talk to a questioner about anything, and pretty soon they're being like, but isn't that arbitrary? <laughs> this really bothers them. Or something that's inefficient. Um, obligers, anytime someone's talking about self-care or making time for themselves or whenever they're saying, like, well, I can't do X because everybody else needs Y. Like, mm. I don't have time to exercise because I'm so busy seeing all my patients. I can never leave the hospital, so mm. I never have time to exercise or... Um, oh, my, my client always comes first, so of course I can't go to my doctor's appointment because I have to put my clients first. Anything like that mm-hmm. is a sign. And, 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 and um, so not taking care of yourself because of others, self-care, that's obliger. And then rebels 
often talk about spontaneity. They put a really high value on spontaneity. Not that other tendencies might not, but rebels, it's like they're very committed to spontaneity. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, like, freedom and choice. Like, this is what I want, this is what I choose. They don't want to be trapped or chained. So anytime they're talking about, like, staying free um, or, like, getting to do what they want when they want, like... Oh, I'm not going to take a, I'm not going to sign up for a yoga class on Saturdays because I don't know what I'm going to want to do on Saturday. I want to just be able to do whatever mm. I want. That's rebel talk. Okay, rebel talk. <laughs> I was listening to your podcast and there was a brilliant uh, listener uh, email, mm. and it was a mother whose daughter was having a conflict with her teacher. <gasps> yes, that was the most moving story. And I, I have several questions I want to ask you about that particular story. But first of all, it was really the fact that. The mother had identified that her daughter was a rebel because she was a rebel too. So she was using the book in order to get the best out of her daughter and obviously nurture her child. Who was seven or eight years old. She was young. Right. Yeah. And then she handed the book to the teacher and said, the way you're going about this is wrong. (laughs) Please read the section on rebels. And full respect to that teacher for not saying something rude. (laughs) And it it had made a massive difference. Yes, to the daughter. Right. Yeah. So and the, and the teacher, that they were able to deal with each other without so much conflict, yeah. So I guess my first question about that is, how does it feel to have put something like that out there in the world that has that kind of impact on an individual? You know, I mean, it's, it is so gratifying. I mean, I like literally, I almost started crying when I read the email from that woman mm-hmm. because to think that, because part of what's, what's frustrating me now that the tendencies are so clear is that often I will see conflicts in the world you know, like a child who won't do his or her homework or uh, a patient who won't take his or her blood pressure medication or there's, like, a sign in a hotel about, like, why you're not supposed to smoke. And I'm like, this could be fixed so much more easily Mm -hmm. if you would just change a few things about your language, if you would just communicate in a slightly different way or just be mindful Mm -hmm. that the way other people might hear this or Mm -hmm. respond to this, this could be fixed with very little effort, you know? And and then I've read so many stories from people where they really had major issues in their lives that, to me, would have been, like, could have been solved in, like, 10 minutes. Right. You know, like, somebody said to me, um, they were a questioner. So questioners don't want to do anything that's arbitrary or inefficient or unjustified, and this is true of questioner children. And questioner children often struggle in school because, like, they'll study for a test if they think that makes sense, but they won't do something like a stupid book report which they think is a waste of their time. Mm-hmm. And so this child, th- this adult wrote in and said, I did terribly in school because I refused to do all these assignments. And the teachers kept saying, well, he's not living up to his potential and we don't understand why he's so stubborn and he refuses to do anything, but then he does really well on the tests. And I'm like, if somebody had just sat down with you and been like, well, you know, maybe you think it's a waste of time to write this kind of report. But what we found is that children really learn from this and you're learning to paraphrase ideas in your own words and you're learning to pick out the important ideas in a Mm -hmm. text and you're learning how to communicate ideas in a way that other people can understand. And these are really important skills that will serve you well. Then that child would have been like, oh, okay, I just didn't see that. (laughs) And then would have done it. You know, so it is, it's thrilling. It's thrilling to think that it could, it could help in situations like that. How has it changed your life? Because it, it must have. Oh, yeah, well, no, it's made me much more understanding of myself and other people. Um, for instance, my husband is a questioner, and um, one of the things that is just kind of like a side phenomenon of questioners is often that they do not like to answer questions. I don't understand that, <laughs> and I get that it's deeply ironic, because believe me, I suffer. But um, they, like if I say to my husband, what time are we leaving? He won't tell me. 
mm-hmm. you know, if he doesn't understand why I have to know. <laughs> and so um, now I understand, like, if I'm going to say something to him, like, what time are we leaving? I have to say, I have to justify it, mm-hmm. my question, by saying something like, what time are we leaving? Because I'm wondering if I have time to go to the gym. Right. Or can you pick up this up at the grocery store because our daughter has to go on a field trip and so she needs to take lunch tomorrow? Because if I just put a request out there or an expectation out there, he often won't do it. Because he's just like, well, why should I? That is the. But now I used to take it personally and be like, why is everything a discussion? Like, why don't you ever do what I say? And now I'm like, he's just like that with everyone. That's just that's yeah. what the way questioners are. I don't have to be. So so I feel a lot less. Um, well, frustration and also puzzled, puzzled because there were people where I'm like, you say this is important to you, so I don't understand why you're not doing it. Mm. Like my sister is an obliger. And sometimes I wouldn't understand why she wouldn't do certain things that she said she wanted to do. But now I understand why certain things are a struggle for her. And so you're able to use the right kind of language and support her in a different way. Exactly. I can yeah. support her in a different way or I can just like not be impatient with her. You know, I can just be like, oh, OK, well, it's very understandable that something that came easily to me didn't come mm-hmm. easily to you because that's just the way the world is. Like, some things are easier for some tendencies than for others. As an obliger myself. Yes, you must say. You're, so you're an obliger. I'm an obliger. Okay. But as an That's obliger. the biggest tendency. That's the one that most people belong to, so you're a good representative for the okay. world. So I found this book very valuable because it gave me some insights into some mm-hmm. of my behaviours that I perhaps previously didn't understand. So what you were just saying then about being impatient with your sister previously... Yeah. I know that if I'm saying something to someone, asking for advice or anything like that, and I get a tiny bit of frustration from them, uh-huh. it sets. I get really stressed. Ah, because I think I'm disappointing them or I'm annoying them. I'm I'm re- I'm failing in meeting their expectations. Exactly, mm. and then but then I've put a lot of pressure on myself to be like other people who aren't obligers. Right. So when someone says to me, "Well, you should just do." this just do it yeah Yeah. right right it's like oh stop being like stop crying or yeah well stop thinking about it well I can't I'm thinking about it and then I beat myself up more because they're saying it's possible to stop yes but the thing that really interests me about the obliger tendency without making this a personal one-to-one consultation oh I love love (laughs) one-to-one consultations yeah is um obliger rebellion Ooh. okay because um listeners there is a section in that particular uh, section of the book where you talk about what Obliger Rebellion feels like. And I have tried to describe recently in the last couple of years, I've talked about um, being in a friendship and then a uh, switch just flipped. Yes. And it was over for me. Yes. And then when you wrote in the book, the vocabulary that obligers <laughs> tend to use is things like a switch flipped. I nearly threw the book out and called it a witch. <laughs> Because like it was really spooky. Yeah. Okay. So this is obliger rebellion. So I'm glad. I'm so glad to hear it struck a chord with you. Excellent. Okay. So, so obliger rebellion is this very common pattern um, among obligers. And like you, I think many obligers feel a sense of kind of relief and reassurance when they realize that this is a common pattern. It's mm-hmm. not some sort of like personal pathology. This sure. is widespread. So obliger rebellion happens when an obliger meets, 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 meets an expectation, and then suddenly they snap, and they're like, this I will not do. Mm -hmm. And it happens when um, obligers feel neglected or exploited or taken advantage of or unheard or when expectations just become too heavy. So I imagine with your friend, they were a very needy friend or maybe very demanding in a way that wasn't reciprocated toward you. 
I would just speculate that that was sort of the situation. Ballpark. Ballpark, yeah. okay. <laughs> um, so there's, so, and so what I didn't understand for a long time about Obliger Rebellion is that it's really meant to be a safeguard mm-hmm. for Obligers because what it does is there, if, if a situation, if the pressure on the expectations, of, of the expectations on the obliger is too heavy, it explodes the situation in order to release the pressure mm-hmm. on the obliger. Um, and like you say, the, the, the vocabulary that obligers use is like a switch was flipped or a balloon popped under pressure mm-hmm. or a volcano exploded or the, the lid blew off of a pot. It's explosive. Mm. And sometimes it can be very protective and helpful, but sometimes it can be destructive because it's not a reasoned pushback. It's like, Instead of being like, this is too much, or you're being unfair, or this isn't realistic, it's like, boom, you're dead to me, I've had it, this is over. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it can be destructive, and it can also be very puzzling to other people, because like you're like slamming your briefcase down on the desk and walking out the door, and your boss is like, well... Why didn't you tell me that this wasn't fair? Why didn't you say that you were being overtaxed? Or like, why didn't you take a vacation? Mm-hmm. You know, they don't. People, other people don't understand it. Um, and so I think really like understanding obliger rebellion and that this feeling of like building resentment and anger that is the sign that obliger rebellion is coming mm-hmm. is something that obligers should watch out for, and also the people around obligers should watch out for because. It's easier to thwart it. Like, if you see that it's coming, it's like intervene. Mm. And one thing that's been um, really interesting to me is a lot of, when this happens in the workplace, what a lot of, I've said, talked to a lot of obligers, it's like, if you can't intervene for yourself, intervene for another obliger. Mm -hmm. Because maybe you would feel like, I can't walk into my boss and complain for me, but I could walk into there and complain for somebody else. Mm. Like, it's not fair what's happening to him. He's taking all the extra shifts. That's not fair. So stick up for each other, yeah. even if you're not going to go in there and advocate for yourself. I don't know if you've had this kind of feedback from other obligers, but I I actually saw it as a really helpful thing, having right. that yes. the obliger rebellion. It's kind of the safety net. It's a safety net. And it was also I, <laughs> my internal safety self-preservation system saying, get out of this situation, because if you continue like this, yes. you will be miserable forever. Yeah. And so it, it prompted a change in the pursuit of happiness, dare right. I say. right. Asking myself, well, I, I'm going to stop meeting these expectations. What do I... I've got myself to this point. Point. How do I get out of it? But have you ever felt that Obliger Rebellion kind of blew up, took down too much? Or, like, instead of kind of preserving what was good about a situation, it just... It was over? Have I ever... Um, no. You, no, you haven't. Okay. <laughs> no, I haven't. I thought it was... I really did feel like it was... Uh, Necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right, yeah, right, right. But I obviously there are different shades of no, no, th- no, no. There are, and then there's some people. There's some people who have almost no obliger rebellion, and then there's some people who are almost in full body, full time obliger rebellion. Where like basically their whole, they feel like they've been so kind of exploited or neglected or taken advantage of that they're almost their whole life is consumed with obliger rebellion. Um, and that's then you have to kind of dig your way out of that. Yeah. Now, and one thing, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but sometimes obliger rebellion is turned to the self. It's like people are like, well, with everything that's asked of me, I can't possibly exercise. Or with everything that people are demanding from me, there's no way I could ask myself to eat right. Mm -hmm. Because it's like, and the obliger rebellion is turned to the self because you have total control over yourself. No one can make you do those things. And no one else is sort of, there's no collateral damage because it's all aimed at yourself. But of course you're the one who bears the brunt of it. Mm. And so I've talked to a lot of obligers who are like, well, how do I get myself out of that? 
so look, neglecting oneself, almost like self-harming. No, through. it is. It's 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 right. It's like I'm gonna let myself down mm-hmm. because I can't I can't risk doing this and I can't risk breaking off this friendship or quitting this job or leaving this marriage mm-hmm. or ending this family this family relationship. So I'm gonna do it to myself. And it's like, yeah, but you're the one who suffers. Yeah, and the but it is this feeling of like, ah, you can't make me. <laughs> um, yeah, it's real. It's interesting that you that you it, you really struck a chord with you because I feel like mm-hmm. it's something that for many obligers, they didn't really understand about themselves, like mm-hmm. the, how this came up or why this was happening. Mm-hmm. I think for me, and I've spoken to a lot of listeners who've written in about similar things, is that it was almost the light bulb of not everyone sees the world in the same way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, it sounds obvious. I know. But this book actually gives you the key to go, oh, okay. So I am different. So I am going to view that sign on the wall telling me not to use my mobile phone (laughs) as completely differently from other people. My interpretation's different. But I think there is a a pressure to almost be like other people or to um, judge people by your own standards. I think it's almost inevitable that you just assume that people see the world that you, it Mm. really takes a lot of kind of intellectual like (laughs) discipline to think like, well, people could see this differently. Mm. Um, No, like some, a rebel was saying like, oh, if I see those signs that say like, thank you for not smoking, it just makes me want to light up a cigarette because I'm like, (laughs) don't assume that I'm going to do something because you want me to do it. You know what I mean? And I'm like, oh, I never had a problem with those. I thought they were a little bit kind of twee, but uh, you know, it, it didn't really bother me, but to a rebel, it was really annoying. And so you don't, yeah. you just don't realize how you're setting off people. Talking about intellectual challenges, you mentioned that at the beginning as well, about how the Happiness Project was um, something, a book that you wanted to write. Uh-huh. Um, then it was a big book that you were going to write and that it was very intellectually challenging. So how did you make it a reality? Um, you mean just like how to turn a book into reality? Because every time I have an author on this show, uh-huh. um, there are a lot of people who listen who are intrigued as to the creative process um, and, right. and I think yes. um, a book often represents a side hustle or fitting something in a round life for a lot of people so for mm-hmm. you what challenges did you face in mm. actually creating this um, well the way that I always work is so I tend to be uh, what, I, what attracts me in a subject is that it's some gigantic subject so like I wrote a biography of Winston Churchill I you know wrote about happiness mm-hmm. I like a really 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 big subject where then the the challenge is to how do you distill it into a, an accessible form mm. where like you hit you talk where I can talk about all the most interesting and important parts, but in a way that's very accessible. Mm-hmm. So I always begin by doing tremendous amounts of reading um, and taking notes. This is something that I do all the time. It's it takes up a lot of time, mm-hmm. constantly reading, constantly taking notes. The special challenge with the four tendencies is I couldn't look it up. It's not like you could go onto Google and 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 you know and Google the four tendencies. Yeah. I had a funny thing where a, a journalist, right when the book came out, was asking me, like, can you give me some examples of people in real life who have these tendencies? Now I've developed that, but at that time I only had a few. And she said, well, can you get back to me on Monday with more? And I'm like, how am I supposed to do that? I can't, like, Google, like, you know, famous person for it. I'm the only one. There's no, there's no resource. So I could only indirectly find things. So I was reading all these memoirs and all these biographies and all these books about personality and just weird, any weird stuff I could find to try to... And talking to people constantly, mm-hmm. trying to do my research, since I was researching something that didn't exist yet. But so I always do that. And then once I have a huge amount of notes, then I start thinking, well, how would I structure it? 
um, if I wanted to communicate this most effectively. And so then that takes a lot of time because I'm a huge believer in the idea that the structure is the most important thing. And, um, and I think in all my books, the structure looks totally obvious. You're like, well, of course, that's the way you would structure it. <laughs> in each case, it's been like four or five major rewritings of like my, my structure before I got there. It's always very. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. That's like a huge challenge. And a lot structure. of authors say the book that you read is a book that they think, oh, I wish I'd done this. Yeah, no, well... Yes, every book has this, like, <laughs> oh, I wish I'd left this in, or I wish I'd taken this out, or, like, um, yeah, or ad- ideas come to you too late. Like, I've mm-hmm. had insights into the four tendencies, even since the book came out, where I'm like, oh, I wish I could, you know, <laughs> put that in now. It's too late. Um, volume and then, two. Yeah, I bought him two. <laughs> and then it's the... Um, and then it's the actual writing of mm-hmm. it. Um, and then, you know, for people who, who want to write books... In a way, the easiest part of writing a book is writing the book itself. Because mm-hmm. then if you want to be a mainstream, if you want to be published by the mainstream press, you have to get an agent. That's a huge task. Mm-hmm. Um, or if you want to self-publish, that's a whole thing that you have to learn about. And so mm-hmm. sometimes people are like, well, I've written the book, so now it's the easy part. I'm like, mm, I hate to break it to you, but there's still a lot of work to be done, <laughs> you know, if you want to get that book on the shelves. But The Four Tendencies... Oh, no, sorry, The Happiness Project is was on the New York Times bestseller list for two years. Yes, right? it was, yes. So at what point during the creative process in that did you realise you were onto magic, or did you ever know? Well, it was interesting because one of the things that was different about The Happiness Project was as part of the experiment. So The Happiness Project was, an, you know, for 12 months I experimented on all these things to try to make myself happier. And it's one of the things I did, um, because I needed to do something to be novel and challenging, because that was one of the theories about happiness, is that novelty and challenge make us happier. I started a blog. Now blogs feel very retro, but at the time, blogs were like the <laughs> yeah. cutting-edge thing. And, um, and they had just become simple enough that someone who was very untechnical like me mm-hmm. could start a blog. Um, and so I did that. So part as I was writing The Happiness Project, I was able, for the first time as a writer, because it was my fourth book, but for the first time, I was able to put ideas out there before the book came out and... He, hear back from Mm -hmm. people and so what I learned was that it was really resonating with people a lot of what I was writing was finding an audience so I think that I was not as surprised that it struck a chord with people 
as I as I would have been mm-hmm. if I hadn't had that kind of relationship with an audience. But also, I think I was able to tell more people about the fact that the book was published. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things about writing a book is, how do people even know the book is there? This is one of the big challenges. It's like a person might really want to read your book, but they just have never they don't they never mm-hmm. hear about it. So that was a way to make people um, realize it. But I had no idea that it would be as successful as it was. Yeah. And if we're talking- I still I still think I can't even really grasp it, frankly. Yeah. But I um I wonder if that's sometimes a good thing or a bad thing. Do you uh, do you do you take time to acknowledge your successes and pat yourself on the back? Um not really, but I definitely feel like things that work then give me more opportunities to mm. do fun, cool things. So that's exciting. Yeah, so I definitely relish it in that way. I've definitely noticed with creative people in uh, interviewing them that uh, often it's not taking those moments to stop and appreciate a real success because their mind has already yes. ex- um, said, right, that's normal, so next. Right, right. Well, you, yeah, you want to just do, you get excited by the new thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, and that's how it is with all my books. It's like by the time, when, once the book is finished, by the time the book is published, I finished writing it a year ago. Mm-hmm. So then you re-engage and you're doing the whole thing of talking to people and that's really exciting. But again, there's like, you're on to the next idea and that's, that's really fun. That's really fun. Now you have, I think, the gold standard of, hey girl, you're successful because you are part of Oprah's Super Soul 100. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's, that, that was fun. Right. Yes. Please Tell me all about that. Thank you very much. Anything to do with Oprah? Anything to do with Oprah. Well, I've been to her house twice. What? Yes, but I would not say that I am a friend of Oprah. But um, one time I went there to to, um, uh, film a Super Soul Sunday interview, and she does it on the grounds of her her home in Montecito. So that Mm -hmm. was, like, so cool and mind-blowing. And they said I could bring my sister. Um, they don't, you can't bring an entourage, but I was like, well, can I bring my sister? <laughs> Cause she's going to drive me down from LA to Montecito and, um, or is it up? I can't ever remember my California geography. Um, and, uh, so that was super fun. And then recently she had a party to celebrate her book, the wisdom of Sundays. And again, I was invited and was able to bring somebody and I brought my sister uh, my sister's favorite thing about my husband <laughs> is that he never wants to be the plus one for Oprah. He's like, no, Elizabeth can do it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, Oprah, whenever you meet someone who's really famous like that, Mm -hmm. I feel like there's so much themselves that it's almost like, feels like a cartoon character or something. Mm -hmm. Because you're like, oh my gosh, you look so much like Oprah Winfrey, (laughs) because you are. (laughs) You sound like her. You sound just like, I mean, she was exactly herself. And so, um, so that was really exciting and it was really fun. And it was really fun to do it with my sister because, you know, things like that are, they're kind of super exciting, but they're also a little anxiety provoking. And like having my, anybody who listens to my podcast, the Happier yeah. Podcast, has a good sense of Elizabeth. So it just, it like, it gave me that partner, you yeah. know, who like was so excited to be there and totally easygoing and made it so much more fun and less stressful. I love the podcast. And oh, I love thank you. And I, when I, I told a few friends, I, I don't like to sort of shout about who's coming on the show because I always fear. I know. Not- oh, yeah. I know that fear. <laughs> yeah. Never say never until that thing, that thing goes live. Exactly. Yeah. Um, maybe that's an obliger tendency. Who knows? <laughs> but I told a few friends and both in both instances, um, when I was with the friend, they grabbed me and they were like, Gretchen Rubin. 
<laughs> and I actually have questions that I'll be asking you at okay. the end of the show from there. Oh, good, good, good. Oh, I love it. And just uh, one of my friends said, have you listened to what she said about clutter? Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> about tidying and yeah. about having clutter. And um, I'm a podcaster too. Right. Yeah. So when did you transpose uh, your content onto audio? Yeah, that was about, it was um, about two and a half years ago now. Um, yeah, I'm just coming, we're coming up on our 150th episode pretty soon. Congratulations. Yes, I know. That was, feels like a big milestone. Um, well, Panoply, which is my platform, approached me and said, would you be interested in having a podcast? And um, I was like, eh, absolutely, yes. I mean, that sounds so exciting. And one of the things I really love about technology right now is that there are so many ways to reach an audience. Like you can use YouTube, you can use Facebook mm-hmm. Live, you can use regular Facebook, you can use Twitter, Instagram, you can write a blog, you can podcast, you can write a book, you can write... You know, there's a million ways to to connect with people mm-hmm. and that's super exciting to me. And so, and I had heard about podcasting. I would be interested if this is your experience, that it's a super intimate medium and that people Completely. really like, they, you're in their head, you're talking mm-hmm. into their ears and um, there's a really deep sense of connection. So I was thrilled to mm-hmm. like to think, yeah, I should do that. Um, and the minute, uh, the minute they approached me, I was like, I want to do this with my sister because my sister Elizabeth is five years younger than I am. Mm-hmm. She's a TV, very successful TV writer in Los Angeles. Um, and we've always kind of joked about the fact that we wanted to collaborate on something. We tried to write a young adult novel together, and we just couldn't because we were too busy. Was that around the time of Twilight? Were you trying? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, well, I'm a huge fan of children's literature and young adult literature, and so is my sister. She's not as dedicated as I am, but she's actually written young adult novels. Okay, what's your I, favorite book then? What, oh, I don't I have no favorite. Oh, my gosh. I love them. I love everything. <laughs> I, I love, I, you know, I mean, I, I, I love the classics. I, love, I, read, mm-hmm. I read all of it now. Um, actually, I have a link on my site, which is my 81 favorite children's and young adult. 81. Yeah, 81. Amazing. Those were like very tippy, tippy top. And then I have like a thousand. Um, that's one of the reasons I love being in London. It's like children's literature. I'm like, I wear the ballet shoes children are. Here I am at the Peter Pan statue. Oh my gosh, Francis Hodgson Burnett lived here. I mean, it's like children's literature. Central. Central. <laughs> Central. I'm going to get a, you know, platform nine and three quarters. Um hmm. But, you have to go to Harry Potter World, my friend. Oh, I have. I went to the studios. Oh. Yes, I did. But I'm going to go to the British Library to see the exhibit there. I'm going to do that this weekend. Okay. Yes, but I went to the studios. My my daughter and I, it's like a special treat. We went mm-hmm. on a mother-daughter thing, and we went to the studios. It was amazing. I went there with my mom. Oh, yeah. I mean, everybody must go. It's so it's cool. It's incredible. Uh, don't get me started on children's literature, because I will not stop. But No, I'm, I'm really interested in it. Oh, really? Do you love I'm it? No, no, I'm interested in why it resonates with you so oh. much. Well, you know, it's interesting. I'm in three adult groups for people who read children's literature and young adult literature. And I think it's a taste for a certain kind of literature, just the way some people love mysteries and some mm-hmm. people love thrillers and some people love science fiction and some people love fantasy. And no one has ever able been able to my uh, satisfaction to be able to say what is different about like a ch- children's book and a young adult book and an adult book. Because they can be masterpieces of mm-hmm. their kind, mm-hmm. even though they're very different. Um, so I love adult literature and I read adult fiction and nonfiction and biographies and all that all the time. Um, but I also love, and I, you know, I read what's being published now as well. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm not like someone who, oh yeah, I loved Lord of the Rings when I was 10. I'm like, I'm reading the new stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. and there's this, we're in a golden age of children's literature and young adult literature. There's so much wonderful 
totally books being written in that in there in there um so so and and so in the and in these bo- these book groups people are like oh do you read it with your kids I'm like no a lot of these people don't even have kids they're just really they're just people mm-hmm. who love children's literature and young adult literature as its own type of thing mm-hmm. um and um yeah as part of the happiness project I I really dialed in and and happier at home I really amplified that aspect of my life because it used to be that I, I was sort of almost embarrassed about it because it didn't fit with my idea of myself as this very sophisticated person and like a really adult reader mm-hmm. and then I'm like I don't have that many interests that I can afford to just shove one under the rug I need to like spotlight this and really revel in it and now that now I, I spend a ton of time reading and talking about children's literature and I love it it makes me so happy I love the life lessons in children's literature that, for me, that's it, is that it might not be presented as yeah. life lessons, but right. when you actually look into it, it's, oh, yeah. oh, that's what you do with bad people. That's how to be a good person. It's like, very didactic. Very yeah. I have a very high tolerance for didactic literature. I gobble it up. I love it. I mean, something like Heidi I love, which is, like, pretty <laughs> pretty hardcore when it comes <laughs> to, that, like, teaching lessons. So I love that, too. I love that, too. And in adult literature... Nowadays, that's considered very, um, I don't know, people don't write like that for the most part. Mm. Occasionally they do, but mm. rarely. And it's something that I, I love as well. I love it too. Are you glad in a way that you didn't do that? Because maybe it's your passion that is something that you can tap into rather than do? It's not something that I can do. I'm mm. not a storyteller. Like, it's interesting talking to my sister. My sister really is a storyteller, mm. and it's a special kind of gift. And it's just not a gift that I have. Um, I don't. I don't have. I don't. I don't think that way or have that mm-hmm. way of communicating, um, uh, which is fine because I have my own way of communicating. But maybe it is fun that I can just enjoy it and not not feel like I have to be taking my notes for my own version of Edith Nesbitt or whatever. Yeah, like I need to write a book about a bunch of children who have a magical adventure. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I can't do that. Yeah, I'm gonna stick to my knitting. Yeah, um, I'm interested. Uh, my English teacher, Mrs. Riddell, incredible woman, always used to say, write what you know, uh-huh. write what you know. And so this is obviously your lane, as yes. it were. <laughs> yeah, for better or for worse, yes. But which made me wonder, um, is it a burden being um, a source of or the poster girl for or somebody who specialises in happiness? Ah, well, it's interesting. I don't feel any pressure to, like, be happy all the time. <laughs> People often ask my children if they feel like they're kind of talking about happiness bully. Am I bullying them into being happy? Unfortunately, they feel like, no, it's okay. I don't have to be happy all the time. No, I don't feel any special burden to be happy. But um, but it is. I do always write from the lens of my own experience, mm-hmm. and I write from my own perspective. And sometimes people criticize me for that because they're like, well, you never take this into account or you never write about that. Or, you know, you're coming from this sort of place. How can you purport to have insights? And I'm like, well, you know, I write from my own perspective Mm -hmm. and I am who I am. And some people find that interesting and some people absolutely do not find that interesting. But that's sort of that that is kind of the way that I have chosen to present um, my conclusions or my perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think weirdly, sometimes it's easier to understand things when when somebody presents their own idiosyncratic perspective, because it kind of throws into light how you agree with the person or maybe see the world differently. Whereas if people try, I often find if, if something's written generally, it's like, it's not like I disagree with it, but I sort of don't understand how it applies to me personally. Mm-hmm. Whereas like, 
you know, and I think the fact that I was like, oh, now I see that I'm an upholder. I was able to see like, well, how is somebody else different? Like my friend on the track team, Mm -hmm. how is she different from me? It was like, it allowed me to sort of see that Mm because I was able to acknowledge the truth about myself. So with the with coming up with the four tendencies, is this all you? Did you have to speak to psychiatrists, psychologists? And I don't know, do you get personality breakdowns validated? I, no, I have I no idea you, how it works. No, it's interesting. No, um, now there has been like this, there was a piece written in a medical journal. There now is being like sort of this interest in can we validate this? Can we test this under kind of like psychological standards? Mm-hmm. I would love that. I think that would be fascinating and fantastic. Um, did I do that? No. <laughs> Um, this was all per- anecdote data. My favorite kind of data, <laughs> anecdote data. Oh my god, um, anecdote, please. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> um, no, this is just from my observation because I was very puzzled as I was writing my book, Better Than Before, which is mm. all about habit change, about how people did or didn't struggle with habits. I was like, well, there are these clear patterns, but how do you explain them? Mm. Um, I felt like no one was acknowledging very, like, very obvious truths to me. Mm. Um, and and like, there were sort of certain things that were just never being accounted for. And so, um, so it all, but then in my vanity, I think, well, the, but then the, the way that I would prove the four tendencies is to say, like, we'll see if it rings true for you, if it explains patterns in your behavior, or if it, makes it easier to deal with other people if you apply kind of this framework. And it seems like for many people it is useful. So mm-hmm. I'm like, well, then it's useful. I would love to have all that psych- psychological validation, but I'm like, but if it's a tool that works mm-hmm. anyway, yeah. like you don't have to wait for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I did do a representative sample. I paid to have a representative sample where I could see like, well, what was the distribution of the four tendencies and to see like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, were they really distinct from each other? So I did kind of a little bit of research like that, but not not like with undergraduates at a university eating marshmallows, you know, or... <laughs> It'd be a much bigger, longer book that we still wouldn't see. Exactly. We, still, we still wouldn't be <laughs> No, I would still be applying for the grant from NIH. So, yes, I just decided I'm just going to bust out with it. And you can take it or leave it as you as you like. Yeah. And there were... I read a, a, a piece that uh, talked about three indirect questions. Ah, for, for happiness. For self-knowledge. For yeah. self-knowledge, because I know that know thyself is... yes. A very big, yes. maybe just explain why. Be this. Gretchen, be Emma. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I mean, it's. I think self-knowledge is at the base of everything. Like, the better we understand ourselves, the better we can create a life that will make us happier. And, you know, it's just hard to know yourself. You mm. think it would be so obvious, but it's it's very hard to know yourself. So I'm always looking for indirect questions where, like, maybe you can't look right into the mirror and see what's there because you it's it's just you keep thinking about how you mm-hmm. should be or how you expect yourself to be or what other people want from you or what you assume is true for other people mm-hmm. but there are questions that you can ask that give you an indirect look at yourself mm-hmm. so one of them is whom do you envy mm-hmm. so if you envy somebody that means they have something that you wish you had so sometimes you can like i realized that i wanted to be a writer because when i read in my college alumni notes about people who had cool law jobs, I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then when I read about people who had cool writing jobs, I felt sick with envy. Right. So I'm like, okay, well, what does that tell me about myself? It's an uncomfortable feeling mm-hmm. to acknowledge. Another question is, what do you lie about? Because if you're lying about something, it's because in some ways you're not living up to your own values. So if you say to people like, oh, I watch like a half an hour of TV a night, and you really watch three hours of TV a night, then in some ways you're not living up to your vision for yourself. Now, you might say, I watch three hours of TV a night, and I love it. It's like, then that's fine. Then there's no conflict. Yes. The, con- the lying is showing that some way you're not acknowledging. Like, you're like, oh, yeah, I see the doctor once a year, and you haven't gotten in five years. Mm. It's like, tell the truth to yourself. 
because then maybe that will that mm-hmm. you can acknowledge what is that maybe things aren't the way you think they should be. Mm-hmm. And another one that's really helpful is, um, and this was the really the central that question back to that woman on the track team. Mm-hmm. She showed me this too. If there's something you're struggling with, ask yourself. Is there a time in the past when you were able to do this? Mm-hmm. You were able to eat healthfully. You were able to exercise regularly. You were able to work on your novel. You were able to practice Italian. You were able to go to bed on time. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times there's clues. What's different about the past and what's happening now? Because sometimes like a little thing will change in our environment, and suddenly it's impossible to mm-hmm. keep a good habit. Yeah. Um, and then when you think about, well, what was different then... Like, I talked to the woman. I thought this was hilarious. She thought she hated to cook. And she's like, I know it would be healthier if I cooked my own dinner instead of getting takeout. But I hate to cook. But then she thought, then I asked her, was there ever a time in your life when you did cook regularly? And she said, oh, no, when I left, I lived in this group house right after college, I cooked all the time. I was like, huh. Okay, so what was different about that time? And she's like, well, what was different is that my roommate loved to food shop. She loved going to the grocery store. She loved picking up vegetables. She would get a, you know, some people just love the process mm. of food shopping. And she said, and then she realized she didn't mind cooking. She hated food shopping. Well, that's a very different mm. problem. If what you hate is food shopping, there's a whole different set of solutions than mm-hmm. hating cooking. Right. But she had, in her mind, she had not understood that those were two different problems. So by mm-hmm. thinking about her experience in the past, she was able to, real, to, to figure out solutions in the present. That is very interesting. I'm going to ask myself those questions. Oh, good, good, good. <laughs> um, you said something a minute ago, which you saw me scribble down a note, and you said, be more Gretchen, be more Emma. Yeah. And it makes me wonder, just as a side note, how do you feel about um, the WW something? So what would Oprah do? WWOD. Oh. How do you feel about that? Because Ooh, that's interesting. a really big thing. Interesting. Because it goes against the no thyself. It does. But you know... You know, maybe, though, maybe it's a helpful strategy because I think sometimes, like, the idea that we're going to do something ourselves feels kind of threatening and scary. Mm -hmm. But then when you imagine what somebody else would do, it kind of can open your mind to possibilities, especially if it's somebody who maybe is different from you. Mm -hmm. Like, I would often ask, I often ask myself, like, well, what would Jamie do? What would my husband do? Because he's a questioner. Mm -hmm. And if there's something I'm thinking, like, should I do this or not? I'm like, well, would Jamie do it? I'm like, (laughs) Jamie would be like, why should I do that? (laughs) So I think it can be helpful, but you don't want to get carried away from because you're right, you want to stay very... You want to use it as a way... I've never thought about this before. You want to use it as a way to illuminate what's right for you Mm -hmm. by maybe expanding your sense of possibility. But here's something for obligers, and I say this to you because you're an obliger, (laughs) Emma. Um, Sometimes when obligers feel the weight of expectation, you know, they need some kind of outer accountability in order to meet inner expectations. That's always the secret for obligers. They have to have outer accountability for inner expectations. And sometimes they can, in their imaginations, create outer accountability or even turn to somebody where it's like, okay... Let's say you're at work and your boss has asked you to do something and like you're seething with resentment. You're rolling your eyes, but you find yourself saying yes. Mm -hmm. And you're like, why? Gosh, why am I doing it? It's not fair. Somebody else should be doing this. Before you say yes, you could stall for time and say, well, let me get back to you or whatever. And then go to a friend or a colleague and say, what should I do? Like use somebody else or maybe in your mind, what would Oprah do? What Mm -hmm. would Emma do? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, you know, or what would my future self wish I had done? Mm. Well, Emma right now feels like saying yes to her boss. But future Emma is going to be really annoyed <laughs> if now Emma doesn't stand up for herself. So I owe it to future Emma to march in there and say, like, 
you know, well, which of my three high-priority tasks do you want me not to do if you're asking me to take on a fourth <laughs> high-priority task? So, so I think it's an interesting exercise, but you don't want to get too far away from what is your core self. Mm. It's just I notice it a lot of people saying, what would so-and-so do? And then there's a new one, which mm. is be more Oprah. Uh. Right. I'm just going to use yeah. Oprah as an yeah, example because yeah, 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 I think she's yeah. universal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Be more Oprah. Well, but what it, do you think? Do you find it helpful? I have been in a situation this week, in fact, where um, I felt really apologetic about standing up for myself and saying, well, this has been really badly organised. And I felt disrespected and yeah. this, that and the other. Okay, can I say? <laughs> it's a bl- disrespected, not heard, taken mm-hmm. advantage of. Okay, now that's, yeah, that's... And so... Um, I wanted, what I wanted to do was leave the situation and come back later. But I felt really, I kept apologising for wanting to go and being uncertain about wanting to leave and come back later. And I thought, I need permission from somebody. Ooh. And then, I know that's so obliger. No, no, yeah, yeah. But it's, but it's, but you, but you recognised it in the moment and fixed it. Thanks to the book. Yeah. uh, But then what I did was, I thought about um, a colleague and I thought, she would not stand for this There you go. And so I said, thank you so much. I'm sorry there's been a misunderstanding. I will see you in a few hours. And I went off. But see, I think that's very <laughs> helpful. I'm, I, I think that's a great... I, I had not thought about that as like a tool for, for obligers to create a form of outer accountability. I think that's a great tool. And what it reminds me of is this friend of mine, um, Alison Gilbert, who writes a lot about being a parentless parent. So she's an obliger, and she was telling me how she could never spend money on herself. She could easily spend money on her husband and her two children, or and she could never take time for herself. Mm-hmm. And then she started thinking, this is what my mother would buy for me. If she were still here, my mother would buy this for me. My mother would say, Allison, you need to take a day off from work. You mm-hmm. need it. That's what my mother would tell me if she were here. And so, again, it's like, what would my mother say? Mm-hmm. What would my mother do? And so, again, it's like it's fascinating to me to, that obligers can create these imaginary forms of accountability, which then kind of, like you say, give permission mm. or free the obliger to resist expectations because that's the big challenge for mm. obligers. How do they resist expectations? So this is a new tool in the arsenal because <laughs> obligers are always saying, like, give me 50 ways of creating outer accountability. I'm like, I've got a million, and now I have a million and one. This is great. Oh. What would it, what think of somebody in your mind and say, what would this person do? Yeah, because I could have easily got and this has been a lot of work, by the way. Yeah, 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 yeah. Work, yeah. Eighteen months ago, I would have stayed and seethed and yes. felt all of these things. Yes, resentment. Yeah, yeah. Whereas instead, I took myself off and I saw Justice League, which I feel was a much better use of that time, <laughs> <laughs> as one does. No, but I love the cinema, so that's like that's... I made a double win out of it. Well, see, there you go. That, but, but see, here's what doesn't work for obligers. Saying something, I need to learn to put myself first. I should be able to um, respond in a different way. Well, don't just figure out a way to create that outer accountability. Mm. It's a subtle shift, but I think it's really, really important. Because when you're just, because then I just see obligers beating themselves up for like, well, why can't I put myself first? I'm like, well, don't worry about putting yourself first. Create the outer accountability. Mm. Then that's what allows an obliger to follow through. Um, it's just quicker and simpler. Yeah, yeah. Than trying to somehow change your inner nature, which is difficult if even possible, which I kind of doubt. You have so much listener interaction and reader interaction on your podcast. Would the podcast ever lead to a book? Do you think? 
Oh, well, I. Because that seems to be a trend. Well, I will say this. Um, <laughs> Elizabeth and I had, you know, every week we have a try this at home, which is like a concrete manageable tip that you can try at home to like make yourself happier. So just for fun, we had this, we were like, choose a signature color. Um, and the, do you have a signature color? Yeah. Oh, what is it? Purple. Purple. Oh, I love purple. Okay. Which color of purple? Oh, I'm wearing purple. You this are, is perfect. I, um, I would say that it's all shades of purple. All shades of purple. Okay, yeah. so you're get an expansive signature color. So <laughs> yeah. ironically, Elizabeth, neither Elizabeth nor I was able to commit to a signature color, but we got so much response. I mean, way more response than I expected. And people writing with such intensity and passion about their signature colors. There was a woman who, like, her mother had this one particular kind of burnt red um, signature color, and she also had a signature pattern, which was like a Southwest pattern, like American Southwest, so that when they bought her urn for her ashes, they found a special urn that was in this color and this pattern. I'm oh, like, oh wow. my God, talk about taking it all the way. Yeah. And that got me obsessed with color, and yeah. I've just become enchanted with the subject of color, which has nothing to do with anything else that I write about, but I'm like writing this weird little book about color now, um, which is going to be called My Color Pilgrimage. And I can't even really explain what this weird little book is. I'm just doing it for fun. But it definitely came out of the podcast because it was only getting all this feedback from other people that was just, I, it just, I was like, how have I never tapped into this before? Mm. Um, people would send us photographs. And um, it, I, I just, I found this whole passion kind of offhandedly. And I'm like, I must write a little book about it because that's the only way I can process anything is writing a, is writing mm-hmm. it down. And now I'm like, I've got thousands of pages of notes about color. Now I have to turn it into a book. So this is going to be like a little side fun project. This is like when I play hooky for myself, I, uh, I work on my color project. Amazing. Okay, well, I look forward to seeing that. I, you said also earlier um, people asking you for examples of uh, people in the spotlight, oh. celebrities potentially who yeah. are and what their tendency is. Yes. Who are the celebrities or people in with a public profile who you get asked about their tendency the most? Um, well, people don't ask me about a particular person, but they will also they will ask me for examples like who are some famous upholders. So, okay. like one fam- the most famous upholder, um, back to our earlier conversation, is Hermione Granger. Oh. Definitely the most the most famous of, of, um, upholder these days. And if people watch Game of Thrones, Stannis Baratheon is like a negative upholder. Okay. I don't know in the I haven't read the books in a while, so I don't remember how he was characterized in the books. But if you watch Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. these are both imaginary ones. Uh, I think <laughs> Phil Knight is an upholder, the founder of Nike. Uh, a very famous questioner is Steve Jobs. Um, in fiction, Jane Eyre, literally on the first page of the book Jane Eyre, her aunt, her hateful aunt says, Jane, I hate questioners. She's called a questioner on the first page of the book, which was extremely satisfying to me. <laughs> Famous obligers, Diana, Princess Diana, mm-hmm. obliger. Um, if you've seen the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, you know, like that's a James bl- Stewart. Uh, yes, James yeah. Stewart. George um, is an obliger. Why couldn't the brother do it? Why couldn't the brother do it? I, you know, I never enjoyed that movie. And like now when I watch it, I'm like, because as an upholder, I'm like, why didn't you keep your expectations for yourself? You said you were going to do this. You said you were going to do that. Why isn't it the brother's mm. problem? If the brother doesn't want to be head of the bank, let him worry about it. Like, yeah. why is this your problem? Not everybody has a Clarence the Angel to come in and talk about Obliger Rebellion turned against the self. That was the ultimate Obliger Rebellion turned against the self. He was literally going to throw himself off a bridge. So it's a perfect, but an Obliger Rebellion is often characterized in novels and movies. It's often portrayed because it's so dramatic. Mm. And then a famous rebel, the most famous rebel right now, President Trump. 48. 
Is he, is he 48 or 45? I always get it wrong. Yeah, um, and Picasso is a famous is a famous rebel. So, so those are some famous famous ones. But it's hard. You can't judge from someone's behavior what mm-hmm. their tendency is. You have to know how they think. And mm-hmm. so, like, to figure out that Steve Jobs was a questioner, I had to do, I had to read, like, four biographies mm-hmm. and massive interviews to understand how he thinks. Yeah. Um, so it's not like you can just, like, see, a you know, like, read, see One a brief tweet interview. And, 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 yeah, you have to understand how they think, especially famous people who are so, their public images are so uh, processed. Mm-hmm. You don't know that you're seeing what, mm. the way they really are. You could just be seeing some vision Ooh. of them. So when a PR department pr- is processing someone's image, what tendency do they want people to interpret, do you think? Well, I don't know. Like, I think Taylor Swift is an upholder, but I, I think she definitely try, hides that. I don't think that she, you know, it's not a very, it's a pretty um, disciplined, um, it's not like an artistic personality. So they, probably they try to make you look like a rebel even if you're not. But a lot of people who are super successful, I'm like, I don't know if they could do that as a rebel. It might be tricky. Interesting. Now, I said that I had a question from someone, a friend who was... Um, literally, when I said Gretchen's coming on the show, grabbed me and shook me. (laughs) So I said to him this morning, okay, so it's happening today. Topics or specific questions. And this is what came back. Okay. Because he's a big fan. Do you know what his tendency is? No. Okay. Okay. That's just always helpful. I'm going to say But anyway, that's me guessing. So the question is, I know that gratitude equals happiness and that there are lots of little things we can do to make us happy, but what are three things that Gretchen sees as the smallest changes with the biggest impact on our overall state of mind? Okay. Well, it's hard to know what is a small change because I would say one thing is getting enough sleep, but mm-hmm. is that a small thing or a big thing? It might, but it's definitely something I would say mm-hmm. if you are feeling tired all the time, if you're impatient, if you feel like you're edgy, most adults need seven to seven and a half hours of sleep a night, get your sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, but really little things, I mean, one of the things people most often mention to me, and as silly as this is, this is something people mention to me over and over, is to make your bed. This seems to be something that helps mm. people, like, start the day. Um, if you need an emergency mood boost, like, you're, like, it's, like, Wednesday afternoon, and you're, like, I need to feel better right now, what can I do? A really quick, easy way, um, to make yourself feel better is to do 10 jumping jacks. Or, like, <laughs> run down the stairs. I always tell people to do star jumps. You do? Yeah. I'm oh, like, that's, like, the English version. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, because it's, 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 like, it's playful, it's childish, you get your feet off the floor, it's, mm-hmm. like, gets you energized. Blood pumping. Right? So you do the, yeah, yeah, or, like, run down the stairs, mm-hmm. like, anything to get your feet off the floor. Um, another very quick, easy way to give yourself a mood boost is to listen to your favorite upbeat song. And in fact, Elizabeth and I have on Spotify, we have a list called the Happier 911 list, and people submitted their favorite, like their favorite upbeat song, like the one that always made them feel better. Mm-hmm. And so it's like hundreds of hours now of people's favorite songs. Um, because that is a very, if you really feel like you just can't even do anything, listening to music is a very easy way. But one of my new favorite ways, one is to look at color, like to really say, like, look at that brick wall and like Mm. pick out the different colors look at the quality of the light look at like look for orange in the landscape or like look at the uh, you know just like one thing I love about London is the red of the buses and Mm. the mailboxes it's just this beautiful red um or a smell I I wrote about this in Happier at Home you can we often ignore the sense of smell but if you tap into it it's such a beautiful energizing scent and it connects you to the moment. You can't bookmark it. You can't mm-hmm. save it for later. You can't even continue to experience it because, you know, after a certain amount of time, 
your sense of smell just you can't smell something anymore mm. so smell a bottle of vanilla smell my daughter walked into a department store she's like oh i love that department store smell i'm like i never noticed that before mm. but they all have that same smell so those are some quick easy things to do that's incredible i'm going to put the links to all your books Great. Your podcast, your website, the quiz. Oh, take the quiz. The Happier 911 Spotify list. And I'm going to put all the links to your social media in oh. the show notes on emmaguns.com and iTunes. I, can I be cheesy? <laughs> I'm so happy. <laughs> oh, it was so much. I feel like we could talk for the next 10 hours. Yeah, unfortunately, we, our time is up. Yeah. It has been <laughs> such a delight. Thank you so much. Thank you. Before you go, just a reminder that I have started a brand new Facebook forum. It's called the Emma Gunn Show colon the forum and the links will be in the show notes. So if anything from this episode is something you want to discuss in a bit more detail with other listeners, then please do click the link and head there. And if you enjoyed the show, please do head over to iTunes, leave it a star rating and a review because that's the kind of thing that helps get a show like mine noticed. See you next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.